Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Reconstruction, A Fool's Errand. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Failures of Leniency. There were five main questions regarding the post-Civil War South. How would you rebuild the South after its destruction and the emancipation of slavery? What would the condition of African Americans in the South be? How would the South be reintegrated into the Union? Who would control the process of Reconstruction? The Southern States? The President? Or Congress? Lastly, what should be done with the leaders of the Confederacy? Jefferson Davis was imprisoned for two years and eventually released. President Johnson pardoned all rebel leaders in December of 1868, though Congress did not remove some civil disabilities until 30 years later. As Union troops occupied large areas of the South, the Army and the administration needed to form policy decisions dealing with Southerners and ex-slaves. Military governors were appointed by Abraham Lincoln to restore limited government and services to the South. Most duties revolved around supplying these broken cities with food and protecting self-emancipated slaves from ex-Confederates. During the war, Confederate guerrilla activity plagued these areas, and emancipation experiments were conducted with varying degrees of success. In 1863, Lincoln gave his 10% Reconstruction Plan, which said that if 10% of all of the voters in the 1860 election in a given southern state made a pledge of allegiance to the United States and abided by emancipation, their state could then be reintegrated into the Union. The next step would be the creation of state governments, which Lincoln would then recognize. Congressional Republicans sharply rejected this 10% plan, claiming it was much too lenient and did not safeguard Union gains. They also feared the planter aristocracy would regain power and possibly re-enslave African Americans. Lincoln's death meant that his vice president, Andrew Johnson, became president and would decide, with Congress, how to enact Reconstruction. Johnson had been the U.S. Senator, a Democrat, from Tennessee. He was the only Southern Senator not to resign his position, and he became the military governor of Tennessee. Later, he replaced Hannibal Hamlin as Lincoln's vice president in 1864, becoming president upon Lincoln's death. Johnson was unwilling to compromise. He lacked Lincoln's sense of public opinion, he was intolerant of criticism, and he was openly racist. And he was also a strong advocate of states' rights. Due to his background, presidential reconstruction would be extremely lenient. It lasted from 1865 to 1867, and it was a series of presidential proclamations. Johnson offered pardons to all white Southerners who took the oath of allegiance. Then, Johnson appointed provisional governors to rule while state conventions were organized. These conventions were supposed to draft new constitutions and create new, loyal governments. Johnson allowed the local governors and legislatures a free hand in local affairs. So what do you think these men will do? Well, they immediately restore the old elites and ex-Confederates to public office. And Northerners are wondering, why was the war fought, which killed 750,000 people, and now you're going to let ex-rebels now lead public affairs? Obviously, Northerners were horrified. 
So what do you think the first thing these ex-Confederate officials will now do in these loyal governments? It's not trying to repair infrastructure. It's not trying to help poor citizens or repair the damage of the war. The literal first thing these men do is try to recreate slavery in all but name. And in order to do this, each Southern legislature passes Black Codes, which were meant to control the actions of African Americans. Under these laws, African Americans are not allowed to own property, marry, vote, hold public office, serve in state militias, testify in court against whites, and certainly they were not allowed to marry whites. Black Codes also made African Americans forced to sign labor contracts or else they would be arrested and hired out to planters. This is literally slavery in all but name. In many black codes were older slave codes with the word slave crossed out and replaced by freedmen. All of these were vehemently opposed in the North, and again they asked themselves, why did we fight this war in order to recreate slavery? Please advance to the next slide entitled, Congress Takes the Lead. In Congress, radical Republicans were hostile to Johnson's plans and wanted to punish the South. Many of these Republicans were from New England, or the burned-over districts, which meant that they were evangelical Christians. They wanted to see an interventionary role of the federal government, and we can see this in the language of the 13th Amendment, which said, quote, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by all appropriate legislation, end quote. Many radicals wanted African-American suffrage, land redistribution, and equality before the law and they will embark on the creation of many acts, amendments, and organizations in order to accomplish this. The first legislative act is the Civil Rights Bill of 1866. It provided the full equality before the law and the establishment of free labor laws. This was vetoed by President Johnson, but Congress overrode his presidential veto. They then passed the Reconstruction Act of 1867. This was again passed over Johnson's veto. The South was divided into five military districts, each commanded by a Union general and policed by a portion of the Union army numbering about 20,000 men. Congress required the states to create new state constitutions and state governments. In order to be recognized, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment before being allowed back into the Union. States also had to guarantee the full suffrage of African Americans, and this paved the way for an easy ratification of the 15th Amendment. Both stopped short of giving freedmen land or education at federal expense. Military rule ended by about 1868 in all but three southern states, though it was later re-established in the 1870s due to the terrorist actions of the KKK. Congress and Northerners did not want to go too far, however, because they did not want to make the federal government directly responsible for the protection of African American rights, and this short-sighted policy will lead to a century of institutional discrimination against African Americans. Radical Republicans had been frustrated by Johnson's interference, and so they introduced the Tenure of Office Act which said that the president did not have the right to remove any of his cabinet members. This was done to specifically protect the Secretary of War Edward M. Stanton and was also 
technically unconstitutional. Well, Johnson decided to force the issue and removed Stanton from office. In retaliation, the radicals issued articles of impeachment. Now, impeachment is an inherently political process, and also a legal one. Impeachments do not mean removal from office. They are merely an investigation into if an official has committed high crimes or misdemeanors. Before impeachment hearings begin, the House gathers evidence, takes witness depositions, and selects experts to give testimony. All of this is done behind closed doors at first, much like a criminal investigation process that leads up to a grand jury. Once this is all done, the House then presents these findings in open congressional hearings, where witnesses or experts take oaths and deliver their testimony while other evidence is presented. Once the House concludes the process, they then vote on whether or not the charges and evidence are sound and declare whether or not high crimes and misdemeanors have been committed. Then, the House sends the investigation up to the Senate for a full trial and potential disciplinary actions. Recently, there has been much false information about impeachment, specifically related to our most recent one. So I just wanted to point out that in every single impeachment in U.S. history, administrations cooperated with the House investigation. They did not obstruct it. The Senate has always allowed witnesses to be called and was not blocked by presidential directives forbidding officials from answering subpoenas. All of these precedents did not occur in the most recent impeachment process of Donald Trump. Anyway, after the House's investigation of Johnson, they voted 126 to 47 to impeach the president for high crimes and misdemeanors as called for by the Constitution. The impeachment trial in the Senate fell short of removal by one single vote. And that was a northern vote because he did not want to set a precedent of presidential removal. And honestly, I wish he had. Regardless, Johnson was a lame duck president. Congress would now take the lead on Reconstruction, and we will pause here for a moment to discuss the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was approved by Congress and ratified by the states in 1866. The purpose was that Republicans sought to place the principles of the Civil Rights Bill into a constitutional amendment as protection against a future Southern takeover of Congress and the subsequent removal of the Civil Rights Bill by a simple majority. The 14th Amendment has the following provisions. It gave citizenship rights to anyone born or naturalized in the United States and the states within they live. It forbade states from abridging the rights of citizens. It required due process of the law be applied to everyone. It required the equal protection of the law be applied to everyone. And if that did not happen, it would reduce proportionally the representation of a state in Congress and in the Electoral College if they denied African Americans their voting rights. It also disqualified from federal and state office former Confederates who had once held high office. It also guaranteed the federal debt while repudiating all Confederate debts. Lastly, it gave Congress the power to enforce this amendment through all appropriate legislation. But do you see any loopholes here? It says states cannot do this, but it doesn't say anything about organizations, or political parties, or private individuals. 
So we will see how this will be cleverly undermined as political parties do not want to allow African Americans to, to participate in private citizens can discriminate against blacks in their businesses or in their communities. This is arguably one of the single most important amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And one professor once told me that every single American historian should have it tattooed somewhere on their body. But I digress. It has a very long legacy. Brown v. Board of Education, which ends segregation in education, cites the 14th Amendment. Roe v. Wade, which gives a woman the right to choose, cites the 14th Amendment. Oberfall v. Hodges, which prevents states from discriminating against homosexuals, cites the 14th Amendment. So whether you like these things or not, you must recognize that the 14th Amendment provides more rights to individuals, and I am always of the opinion that more rights are a good thing. One last weird point. The 14th Amendment has also been used kind of weirdly. In the 1880s, 90s, and the early 1900s, it gave corporations personhood and also allowed them to prosecute unions. In addition, in the Bush v. Gore decision of 2000, the Supreme Court cited the 14th Amendment to allow them to stop Florida's recount, which handed George W. Bush his victory in that election. So you take the good with the bad. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1868. I'm going to cover this election very briefly, simply to note that the hero of the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, ran as a Republican and went up against Horatio Seymour, the governor of New York, a Democrat. Reconstruction was the central issue of the election, and Republicans identified Democrats with treason and secession. Their tactic was called waving the bloody shirt, reminding most Republican voters that those scars on their body were given to them by Southern Democrats. Democrats called Reconstruction unconstitutional and demonized black suffrage. Grant ended up winning this election, as well as the election of 1872. And while Grant is arguably America's greatest general, he was far from a good president. Mostly because he was too trusting, and he let friends handle business the same way a general delegates authority in war. But in politics, trusting people isn't always the best, since they can often become corrupt, as was the case here. Grant himself was never personally involved, but his administration is well known for the corruption of his subordinates. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Reign of Terror. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there was a great deal of violence towards blacks and Republicans. This got increasingly more violent during Radical Reconstruction and Grant's administration. This was essentially a paramilitary rebellion against radical rule conducted by the terrorist wing of the Democratic Party. Their goal was the overthrow of Reconstruction governments in the South and to replace them with white supremacy-oriented democratic government. Many whites resented the success and efficacy of African Americans and their legislatures, and they did all they could to challenge the supposed corruption of carpetbaggers and scallywags, though we'll talk about that more later. The KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, also called the Invisible Empire of the South, was founded in Tennessee in 1866. It was led by the infamous Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, 
who was well known for his atrocities against black Union soldiers at the Fort Pillow Massacre. The KKK consisted of whites from all classes in the South, and they used terrorism while clad in white sheets to intimidate blacks, northerners, and southern republicans. Flogging, mutilation, or murder was common against black and white republicans, and the KKK became effective in many areas to discourage blacks from attaining their rights. In Louisiana, in the summer and fall of 1868, the KKK and white Democrats killed 1,081 people, most of whom were either black or white Republicans. In Texas, in one single year, 1,000 African Americans were murdered, many for simply refusing to give up the sidewalk or tip their hats to whites. I'm going to give you two examples of the KKK assassinations here in Arkansas, exemplified by James Hines and John M. Clayton. James Hines was a congressman from Arkansas. He traveled through Arkansas trying to get support for the Republican Party. In September of 1868, he was assassinated by KKK members when they shot him in the back with a shotgun, and his murderers were never brought to trial. Two decades later, in 1889, John M. Clayton was investigating the worst electoral fraud scandal in Arkansas history having lost a congressional race by less than 900 votes after armed men stole ballot boxes from majority black counties. He was in Conway County when someone shot him through his hotel window, resulting in his death. His assassins were never brought to justice. So you see the lengths to which the KKK and other white supremacists will go to influence elections. The KKK succeeded in decimating Republican organizations in many localities, and in response, new Southern governments looked to Washington for survival. In response, Congress passed and Grant signed the Force Acts of 1870 and 1871, also called the Enforcement Acts. The U.S. Army sent troops to quell the KKK's intimidation while terrorist groups were outlawed. And this is the first time that the federal government has protected individuals rather than local authorities. They were moderately successful in destroying the KKK, yet much intimidation had already gone into effect. By 1872, the Klan was no longer a major political force in the South, and the Force Acts were repealed 20 years later by Democrats. In direct response to this terrorism, Congress decided to pass an amendment to protect voting rights from such violence, and this became the 15th Amendment. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment was passed by Congress in 1869 and ratified in 1870 during Grant's presidency. Section 1 states, quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2 states, quote, that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, end quote. The purposes is to ensure that the state guarantees suffrage and would not rescind it if Southerners came to dominate Congress in the future, and it also hoped to strengthen Republican control in Southern states. But there are numerous loopholes. It says nothing about holding office. It says nothing about infringing rights based on money or literacy. So that means that going forward, poll taxes, literacy tests, 
and property requirements will be used to disfranchise poor whites and African Americans. Literacy tests were administrated unfairly to favor illiterate whites, and many southern states also created, quote, grandfather clauses aimed to reduce the number of black voters. Because if your grandfather could vote in 1860, you are fine. But you know who that does not apply to? African Americans. Another loophole of the 15th Amendment is that it says nothing about private individuals or organizations that can still keep you out. So the Democratic Party, if they want to, can block you from voting in their primaries. It also says nothing about intimidation. Women are not included in this, and female leaders of the abolitionist movement will hear split from the men because they are angry at the fact that suffrage was not extended to them. Now, we will discuss this in a minute, but the promises of the 15th Amendment are not realized until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. However, very recently, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act were struck down by the Conservative Supreme Court in 2013 in the case of Shelby County v. Holder. Since then, voting restrictions have exponentially increased. In Georgia, DMVs are closed down in black-majority counties so you cannot register to vote. In the last election, Georgia's gubernatorial candidate, who was also the acting Secretary of State in charge of elections, disfranchised thousands of black voters right before the election, ensuring his victory. So as we see, voting restrictions are now alive and well. And you may hear a lot of talk about electoral fraud and ballot stuffing. Ballot stuffing has never been a real form of electoral fraud for decades, but a real form of fraud is voter disfranchisement, and it is happening again. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Successes of Reconstruction. The first major success of Reconstruction was the reestablishment of African American families. Self-emancipated slaves wandered the South for their families who were sold away or were left behind during the war. Black families, which had lived under the fear of being sold before the war, now strengthened and became the central defining feature of African American culture. The wives of African American soldiers sometimes received their husbands' pensions, allowing for a little bit more prosperity. As a result, black women embraced the white idea of the cult of domesticity. They had been forced to work in the fields for hundreds of years, and now they were able to spend more time in the home strengthening the institution of the family, and for that they were derisively called, quote, playing white, end quote, when in reality they just wanted to be with their children as any middle-class white person would want to be. In total, the reestablishment of black families helped create kinship networks which served as community, church, and political focal points throughout Reconstruction and the later long civil rights movement. The next success of Reconstruction was the establishment of black churches. With freedom, the second thing African Americans will do is create their own independent parishes. During slavery, whites had monitored black worship in order to stop slave revolts. Now, African Americans have more religious and social freedom to preach what they want. As a result, preachers hold substantial political power and many became elected officials. Churches become the focal points of the black community. They hold regular social events and school there since it's pretty much just one building in the area. And remember, 
Freedmen are very poor, so building a new structure is expensive, but it also illustrates how important this was to the community. Black churches will become critical to education in the civil rights movement, and we see this as many great leaders of the civil rights movement are Christian clergy. For instance, Martin Luther King in his Southern Christian Leadership Council. Now, whites recognize this. So why do you think that black churches continue to be burned and shot up? All we have to do is look at a Charleston church shooting in the three black churches in Louisiana, which were burned in 2019. That is the long arm of history and the continued example of white supremacy in America. Educated freemen in Northern Benevolent Societies then took great pains to bring education to former slaves. They were aided by union leagues, who taught blacks how to conduct politics and how to politically organize, as well as to educate. And this also formed a pseudo-military organization for self-defense against the KKK. Another success of Reconstruction was the proliferation of African-American officeholders. Blacks made up the majority of voters in Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. But only in South Carolina did they make up the majority in the lower house. No state senate had a black majority, nor were there any black governors during the period, coined by white southerners as black reconstruction. Nevertheless, many black representatives served with distinction, and some were very well educated like two black congressmen from Mississippi, Hiram R. Revels and Blanche K. Bruce. 2,000 black politicians held office during Reconstruction, and African Americans were represented at every level of government. In most states, though, were still dominated by white politicians. Land reform is not exactly a success of Reconstruction, but at least it was attempted with mixed results. The ownership of land was essential for black liberty and equality. As a result, Northerners attempted what was called the Sea Island Experiment during the Civil War, where farms on the coastal South Carolina islands were given to freed slaves to work for wages. Southern whites, unaccustomed to black freedom, attempted to revive their old habits and tried to take this land away. Northerners, accustomed to a free soil ideology, advocated a system of free labor that is anathema to Southern customs. All the attempts to provide land to freedmen was conducted by the Freedmen's Bureau. And even though land reform will ultimately be a failure because land is given back to Southern planters, the Freedmen's Bureau is an initial example of what the federal government could have done if they had not chose to ignore the pleas of blacks. The Freedmen's Bureau was created in 1865 by Congress, and it was headed by General Oliver Otis Howard, later founded and served as the president of Howard University in Washington, D.C. Northern officers and abolitionists became bureau agents. They attempted to help unskilled, uneducated, and poverty-stricken ex-slaves in order to help them survive. They provided food, clothing, medicine, and education to ex-slaves and poor whites. They taught about 200,000 African Americans how to read, and many of these people were eager to read the Bible. The Freedmen's Bureau attempted to negotiate labor agreements under what was called the contract labor system. The idea is that freedmen would work for wages 
on the land owned by planters, sort of a good old-fashioned free labor ideology. But the problem was that there was a great deal of corruption. Local whites would bribe or co-opt bureau agents. Sometimes agents collaborated with planters in expelling blacks from towns and forcing them to sign labor contracts to work for their former masters. Another major problem with this is that there is simply no currency in the South. It had all been used on the war, so there is no way to pay wages to these people, and we will come back to that later. The point is that even though it was short-lived, it was an attempt to solve the issue of land and labor in the post-war South. A major success of Reconstruction was the global context of emancipation. Because the United States was not the only country to deal with the issues of emancipation and freedom. Haiti, Barbados, Trinidad-Tobago, and Brazil each emancipated their slaves, albeit at different times and with varying conditions. Haiti annihilated the planter class. Barbados, after emancipation, imported Indian and Chinese laborers so they didn't have to give freed slaves political rights, and Brazil held on to slavery until 1888. Only in the United States did emancipated slaves win political suffrage within two years of their liberation. And so while I am exceedingly hard on the United States and its jaded history, we at least have to give credit where credit is due. Another success of Reconstruction was in the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments expanding the rights of Americans. However, as we discussed, there were drawbacks and loopholes to these amendments. Now, one mixed result of Reconstruction was public schools. Republican governments in the South created the first public school system in that region. In the antebellum era, there were no public schools. If you wanted education, you either paid for a tutor or you went to the North. Now, public schools were expanded so that the poor and African Americans could be educated. But many whites refused to go to school with blacks, and so we see public schools become a site of contention throughout Reconstruction in the 20th century. Another mixed result of Reconstruction is urbanization in the New South. Numerous southern cities were ravaged by war, which required substantial rebuilding. Republican governments sought out to rebuild and expand the southern economy through the development of infrastructure, and in particular, railroads. Railroads are costly, but the infrastructure of the South improved and expanded the participation in the market economy. This benefited some while was a detriment to others. Remember the pains of the market revolution? Well, this will continue as America industrializes. In the end, many state governments will end up having to close down railroads due to corruption or bankruptcy, and they will become a site of contention as Democrats regain control of state governments during redemption. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Failures of Reconstruction. During Reconstruction, there was a great deal of corruption. Some Southerners labeled Southern Republicans as scallywags, and Northerners who came to the South as carpetbaggers. Now, not all of these individuals were corrupt, but enough of them were in order to taint all of the Republican administrations of the South. Another failure is high taxation, which led many whites to dislike Reconstruction. But it was necessary to rebuild the South, 
to fund public schools and to build infrastructure. One of the major failures of Reconstruction was land reform, because whites resisted it too strongly. So an attempted compromise was made, called sharecropping. In theory, sharecropping is where poor black and white farmers work a piece of land and produce crops for a landowner. Laborers are then able to keep a small percentage of those crops to sell. Now initially, the compromise seems decent, but what results is that the system becomes endemically oppressive to poor whites and blacks alike. If you know anything about agriculture, you know that you live on credit. You need to borrow money in order to buy seed, tools, clothing, and food to live on. As a result, the crop lien system is developed. This is a system where a sharecropper pledges a portion of their crop to a plantation commissary or country store in exchange for supplies, food, clothing, and other items. But landowners who own these stores set prices, so you will pay more for everything since you're buying on credit. Also, these landowners will not give you the best price for your crop, and so combined, every year, you will never make enough money to get out from under this debt. Well, some may ask, why not go somewhere else? Because the elites won't let you. Planters create sunset-to-sunrise bills, outlawing the trading with local stores to stop sharecroppers from disposing of their crops when and where they wished. Now, this is not very free market capitalism now, is it? In addition, there's the creation of anti-enticement laws, which forbade offering higher wages to farm laborers. This protects planters' monopolies on their labor without having to compete with other landowners for wage increases. Not very capitalistic, is it? The point is that this means that blacks and poor whites are kept in a perpetual cycle of debt peonage. They will never be able to escape this during their lifetimes. And debt laws, called blood laws, are made, which passes down your debt for generations. So if you die with debt, your son inherits it, then your grandson. All told, these laws stop you from moving, from finding the best prices, from finding the best work, in order to keep you indebted for life. This is why the South remains the poorest region of the United States to this day, because the legacy of slavery, and then because of sharecropping and these unfair, anti-free market economic policies which hurts everyone except large landowners and merchants. And we have to point out the obvious. Isn't it interesting that the region that screams loudest about free market capitalism is the one with the longest history of anti-free market practices. Just saying. Another failure of Reconstruction is lynching. This is terrorism and murder that will continue well into the 20th century. The numbers of lynchings in 1898 were 230 individuals, the all-time high followed by 1884 of 211 individuals. Southern states will block federal laws forbidding the lynching of individuals well into the 20th century. And lynchings aren't just simple murder. What happens is you grab an African American, usually falsely accused of rape or some other crime. They are dragged out in front of the community who comes out with picnic baskets, has a whole good time 
as African Americans are strung up by the necks on trees. Then the white community takes photographs of them and cuts off pieces of these bodies in order to hold as mementos. There's a story I like to tell of one of the professors I used to work with doing an interview with an Arkansan, and as this Arkansan was talking about his grandfather being at a lynching, he pulled out an old photo of two African Americans hung by the tree. That is the long arm of history and white supremacy in this country. Grandfathers holding onto pictures of murder. The last failure of Reconstruction was disfranchisement, the taking away of the vote from blacks and poor whites. In addition, another failure is Jim Crow segregation, which we will talk about later. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Death of Reconstruction. In 1875, Congress passed the last civil rights bill until the 1940s. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 prevented hotels and other organizations from discriminating based on race. But despite these advances, the corruption of Grant's administration was too unsettling to many Americans who were wary of politicians. Northerners also had their old fears of big government. They distrusted the growth of federal power as a result of Reconstruction, and this alienated many voters. In addition, there was a great deal of economic problems as a result of Reconstruction, which exacerbated public opinion. The Panic of 1873 devastated the country's economy, and its lingering effect of currency issues and debt from the Civil War, speculation in railroads, and international currency issues created large-scale instability and a deflationary crisis which lasted from 1873 to 1897. In addition, Southern Democrats continued to agitate on federal soldiers being around them, and violence will continue in the South, and Northerners are just simply tired of dealing with it. In the election of 1876, Governor Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio, who served during the Civil War, faced off against New York Governor Samuel J. Tilden. Hayes, like Grant, ran on a Civil War service, and said, quote, not every Democrat was a rebel, but every rebel was a Democrat, end quote. Tilden ran as a reform candidate, contrasting against the corruption of Grant's administration. But as you can see from the electoral map, it's a 50-50 tie in the Electoral College, 185 to 184. Now, the Democrats did get a narrow majority in the popular vote, as you can see, about 48% to 51%, and now there's an impasse. There needs to be a solution to this constitutional crisis, and that solution will cause the death of Reconstruction. The Compromise of 1877 was set up by an electoral commission to decide the contested election. A series of backroom negotiations secured victory for Rutherford B. Hayes, but the conditions of this bargain included, first, that a southern transcontinental railroad would be built, Second, a Southerner would be nominated for Postmaster General, a cabinet position, the first that a Southerner would have since the Civil War. Third, federal troops would stop guarding state houses of Southern states. And lastly, Democrats pledged to respect the civil rights of African Americans. Though some conditions were met, neither the railroad or black rights came to fruition. 
Thus, federal troops pulled out of the South, and state by state, Southern Democrats began the period of redemption, or the taking over of state and local governments from Republicans. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Disfranchisement and Segregation. After the fall of Reconstruction, Southern Democrats began a 30-year struggle to permanently purge third parties that could fuse with Republican survivors. Now, the most prevalent mode of suppressing black or white votes came in the form of extra-legal terrorism perpetrated by the Klan and other paramilitary organizations. But Southerners learned the lessons of the 1870s well, because intimidation and violence would call out federal intervention. So what was required were legal forms of voter suppression in order to legitimate white Democratic rule. The answer came in the 1890 Mississippi Plan. It required would-be voters to pay a poll tax six to eight months before the election, and that had to be done at the time of year when it was most likely that blacks would not have money. Voters also had to prove that they could read and interpret the state's constitution to a judge's satisfaction, and this is enshrined in literacy tests. And by the way, modern PhDs have attempted to take these exams and failed, so that's how difficult they were. These laws hit African Americans particularly hard because they tended to be poor and illiterate, and that was the goal of the plan. These laws enabled the ability to disfranchise African Americans without officially violating the 15th Amendment, and it severely decreased the numbers of voters in Mississippi. In 1876, there were 250,000 Mississippi voters. In 1892, there were just 77,000. By 1908, every former Confederate state had a poll tax, and this hurt the poor, illiterate whites as well. So some Southern Democrats wanted to find a way to exempt poor whites, and they created a loophole called the Grandfather Clause, as I stated before, that if your grandfather voted in 1860, you would be allowed to vote as well. And this did not apply, obviously, to African Americans. The segregation of the races was due to the passage of Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow was a character in old minstrel or blackface shows of the antebellum era. Jim Crow laws weren't passed during Reconstruction, but rather a little later in the 1880s. And they were first enacted on railroads because railroads are big business. From 1887 to 1891, nine southern states passed laws requiring blacks to ride on separate railroad cars. Jim Crow eventually spread to all types of public facilities, including streetcars, prisons, parks, and washrooms. Now in 1903, African Americans in Little Rock, Pine Bluff, and Hot Springs organized a boycott of these laws, and we will see that this is 50 years before the famous example of the Montgomery bus boycott during the Civil Rights era. Many African Americans were not passive victims, but they took the states to court. And an example of this is in 1896, when the Supreme Court ruled in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. Louisiana had a law that called for segregation of railroad cars. So Homer Plessy, who had a single black grandparent and was one-eighth black and light-skinned who could technically pass for white, told the railroads in advance that he was going to board a white car only. Plessy was arrested 
and argued that the Louisiana law violated the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court ruled that race was a social and physical fact. It ruled that the Louisiana segregation law did not violate the 14th Amendment so long as that the train cars for whites and blacks were equal. Thus, the expression of separate but equal came into being. No one in the years would have argued that black facilities were equally equipped. But the fact that they were black facilities meant that equal protection was guaranteed by the 14th Amendment and had been upheld. So here again we see a loophole of the 14th Amendment. This lasted until the Supreme Court ruled that separate but equal in education was unconstitutional in the Brown v. Board ruling of 1954. Two years later, in 1898, the Supreme Court ruled in Williams v. Mississippi that the poll tax and literacy tests used to disfranchise African Americans did not violate the 15th Amendment since they were written to apply to all people. And just to point out, the Supreme Court at this time is dominated by Northern Republicans. Justice Henry Brown, who wrote the decision, was from Michigan. And this shows that Jim Crow was not a Southern, but a national phenomenon. As Northern states also embarked on the process of disfranchisement of the poor and immigrant Europeans flooding into Northern cities. That is all I have for you today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.